0: Welcome, everyone, to this wonderful Star Wars supplemental episode of the 602 Club. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, We're getting ready to dive into uh, a book that, well, let me just spoil it for you. I absolutely adore. I adore. And uh, with me to talk about that is uh, a man that needs no introduction, but I shall give one anyway. The wonderful, the talented, nay, I should say, incredible bruce gibson
1: thank you thank you sir i appreciate all the kind words you have to say that'll be fifty dollars <laughs> i'm sending to you right now excellent oh
0: just got that PayPal notification all right uh <laughs> oh man i'm so excited to talk about rebel rising with you today uh I just, I really did. I absolutely adore this book. It's, it's a Star Wars book, and and uh, it's exactly what I wanted. But Well, that's
1: the show. He likes yeah, the book, Yeah, there we everybody. go. I mean,
0: we're done. Uh, we don't need to talk about it anymore. Uh, just kidding. Where can I mean, people bo-
1: find you online, Matt?
0: <laughs> oh, they could find me. Uh, <laughs> you can actually find uh, all the shows that we do here on the Trek FM network on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We are a feature provider over there on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you check it out. Heck, we're doing an iTunes review contest with the 602 Club right now. And I really want to give away to somebody some exclusive Funko Pop Guardians of the Galaxy swag. I mean, it's great stuff. It's stuff that you can only get from Funko's uh, exclusive Collector Core box. Uh, And I'm giving it away. Uh, All you need to do to enter is... You need to go over to Apple Podcasts and review and rate the 602 Club, and uh, you'll be entered. So do that. Uh, While you're there, uh, check out all the other shows we do on Trek FM. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Bruce, both you and I are always hanging out in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only discussion group. Uh, If you'd like to join us talking about all the things we're talking about on Trek FM, you just want to go over to Facebook. Type into that search field, the Babel Conference, and we'll let you right into the group. You can also find us through our website at trek.fm. If you're there, any of the show pages, you'll see a little link. It says discussion. That'll bring you to the listeners-only discussion group. And uh, if you want to talk with us further, great way to do that is go to trek.fm slash contact. You can choose the show, choose the 602 Club, and that message will come straight to me and anybody who was a host that week. So... Bruce, uh Rebel Rising is a book by Beth Revis, and this one is basically the story of Jen Urso from the moment that she is saved by Saw Guerrera to the m- moment she gets rescued by the rebels. And it fills in that story for her from that young girl and how she was raised by Saul and everything that happens to her. While at the same time, also kind of every once in a while filling in her time on Wobani and seeing what it's like to be a prisoner of the empire in one of their labor camps. And so there's this back and forth uh, for the story. And uh, I just wanted to first ask you, how did you like the structure of the book? Did that work for you to kind of fill in both of those timelines uh, and
1: and give you an opportunity to see both
0: parts of Jin's life?
1: It did. I I liked the aspect of that when you watch Rogue One and you see that prologue of when she was younger and Saul Gerrera comes to rescue her. Then all of a sudden, you know, the music builds up and the Rogue One title comes up on the starfield. And really what you could do is just say, okay, that part right there where Rogue One comes up and the words come up, that's this book. That's the part that happens all right in there, (laughs) okay? So it's great because the next scene after the Rogue One title is her locked in that cell. So we see what happens shortly before that, and then we go back to see what happens shortly after the prologue. And it fills in all those gaps. So in a lot of ways, I kept thinking, you know, it would make a lot of sense to read Catalyst, then start the prologue of Rogue One, then read this book, and then watch the rest of the movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I think that was what
0: was uh, so great about the book, is that it legitimately fills in those time pieces, those, those time gaps that we get, and gives you what you hope Any book uh, in tie-in fiction does, which is to expand your understanding of the characters and the situations they find themselves in in the movie. And, you know, with Jin, she's a character that we only get to know in one movie. And that's all we'll ever get because, spoiler alert, Jin dies at the end of Rogue One. Sorry.
1: Well, we didn't really technically see her die die.
0: Uh, we just assumed, uh, other than be vaporized by, you know, Death Star blast. I mean, you know.
1: Unless she got beamed up. Well, wait, they, they don't have they transporters. Don't have beaming. Yeah. Okay. yeah. That's that. a wrong.
0: That's the wrong show, Bruce. Uh, no, I I think that's the thing though that this book does phenomenally well is give you the understanding of who Jen Erso is and really Make you feel as though that when you watch Rogue One now, you fully understand this character, but you also understand the galaxy better. You understand Saw Gerrera better. You understand uh, the the rebellion better, and how it's all come together. I mean, like it's it's
1: everything you want from a great Star Wars tie in book. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's perfect. It's just what we need after seeing Rogue One so we can learn about, learn about Jen. Erso. I've heard some people complain that they didn't really feel like they knew her character well enough at some times or really why she got to where she was. And now this really, really fills in that gap. Now, some people can argue, oh, well, you know, to really get something out of a movie, I shouldn't have to go and read a book. Well, no, you don't have to read this book. I mean, I think Rogue One stands on its own. I don't think you need to read any books to appreciate that movie. But this one's really nice because it really fills in what I suspected happened to Jin Erso during those years before the movie really takes off. And the fact that she's with Saul Guerrero. I suspected that he helped raise her and train her to do what she was physically able to do, which we saw in Rogue One, to defend herself. And that's what we find out in this book, that she is being trained by Saw Gerrera. Yes, she's not being trained on the use of the force, but just the use of her force and might in fighting against people.
0: Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I think... I want to say, too, I think Rogue One definitely stands on its own. I think that it does a phenomenal job of building characters that you care about in one movie. And uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We are so absolutely used to, these days, spending 12 movies with a character and getting to watch that character build. So we're not used to having a movie give us characters and then kill them off. I mean... This is the Great Escape, you know. This is the Dirty Dozen, you know. This this is that type of film where you're going to get to know the characters, and then most of them are going to die by the end. And so you only have one movie to to really spend with them. And I think Rogue One does a phenomenal job with that. And I think this book uh, does exactly what the, you know we're talking about. Tie in fiction is supposed to do which is to expand and give you an even better sense of everything that you saw on screen uh, so that you are rewarded for reading it. And let me just say, this book is a treat and a reward. Uh, and so I definitely think that, I, I'm just going to say it right up front, you need to read this book. If you, if you want to know more about all of this, I think this book is, um, it's as close to, to essential as you really get when it comes to tie and fiction for characters and stuff. I, I just I really believe that with this one. So uh yeah, I'm gonna be singing its praises a lot. Uh but that's because Beth Revis and, and the story group here have done such a phenomenal job of giving us something
1: that's uh worth worth reading. I don't know. It, and it's a young adult book, right?
0: Yeah, it's YA. I mean it's the same type of book. Uh, gosh, uh, Bruce, how many times have we sung the praises of lost stars? But it, and its YA, this is the same exact age range book, but this is just as good, if not better than a lot of the other books that we've gotten uh, for adults. There's there's absolutely no difference here in the quality for me. That's that's amazing. And that's incredible. Again, I give that all to Beth Revis in her writing style and, and the way that she told this story so that I never felt like I was reading a book that was dumbed down for anyone.
1: And It's gotten to a point that when a Star Wars book comes out and it's YA, I think, oh, it's got to be good because so far all the YA books have been really good. And a lot of ways I think Star Wars is YA. It's not supposed to be adult. It is for all ages. It It appeals to a younger audience. So in some ways I wonder when Star Wars is written that way, it feels more like Star Wars than an adult novel sometimes.
0: I think you actually have a a, a really valid point. I mean, um, you know, John Mills and I have just recently read through because I was able to find two copies of this, which is the Lucas Interviews book uh, that was put out years ago now. Um, in fact, the last interview that's in there was uh, as the Phantom Menace was coming out. but it's it's interviews all the way from the beginning of his career. To the Phantom Menace. And it's a phenomenal read. If you can find a copy of it, definitely check it out. Uh, because if you want to understand Lucas and, and really see that, for the most part, what Lu- Lucas has been pretty consistent about Star Wars. Uh, and he's always said, Star Wars is for kids. He said that right up front from the very beginning. Star Wars is for kids. He even said in one review, it's pretty much for 12 to 14 year olds. And I think you're absolutely right. Star Wars works so well for YA. But what's, what's crazy about this, this YA book, this Lost Stars, it, I don't get the feeling like it's kid stuff because there's some really dark, dark stuff that happens in here. I mean, this is, you know, everybody talked about how dark Rogue One was. But this book continues that trend of just the darkness of this dark time like this is the darkest of times for the galaxy and i i like that beth and the story group don't shy away from that
1: well i love the hunger games and that's ya and that's dark so picking up a ya book i i don't really know what makes it different from an adult book because I'm reading this book on my Kindle. And so I'm not looking at this going, picking it up like, Oh, this is a a YA book. But I, I'm assuming that, and I'd love to hear from somebody to explain it, but I'm assuming one of the differences of YA is the reading level. Maybe it's not using certain words or something that may find an adult book. I don't know but it always seems like there's always some kind of love interest going on too.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's that and I think um you know that's something we'll definitely talk about a little bit later on and uh to see how how that worked. You know, obviously we talked about again Lost Stars, all that stuff worked really well for us because it it it, it almost humanized the characters in a way, you know, and it, and it really even as an adult, I can still know what that's like. I, I can still remember what that's like, young love, or, or love in general, obviously. <laughs> because I'm an adult, I've been through those things, so it didn't throw me off. Um, and I, yeah, I can't wait to kind of dive in and, and talk to you a little bit more about that when we really dig into Jin and her story. But um, the thing I kind of wanted to, to, to jump on top of first with this book because it's a really big theme throughout this story as as Jin is growing up and she's growing up with Saul she's being trained and she's seeing how th- Saul fights this rebellion the big question that obviously happens and we know that this happens with Saul and the other parts of the rebellion is: is how do you fight the rebellion and it was fascinating to me to see that we get to watch the progression of how extreme Saul becomes throughout the book. And in the end, really, Saul's mantra is this. You fight fire with fire. If the Empire has done it, then basically he thinks that gives you license to do the same thing. And and so the question is, is, is how do we fight this war? Um, uh, do we just massacre the Empire and anyone around them? Or do we fight more with a specific purpose? Uh, do do we have some sort of rules of engagement? You know, all of this stuff I thought was really fascinating because it's a part of not just Star Wars, but it's it's even like George would do it. It's a part of the morality tale of... Asking a really big question how and
1: and and why do we fight a war so it it definitely struck me how the rebels were portrayed almost as wimps in saul's mind the way yes, you know, when, yes. When, when he's talking to to Jen and his cohorts it's very much of those rebels they're just not getting it they're not doing enough. They're taking the wimp's way through this and that's not going to change anything. It's just going to be a little blip on the screen and the empire isn't going to notice it and the people that we would want to rebel against the empire aren't going to notice it. So if you're going to make a statement, you have to make a bold statement. And Saul makes it clear that, you know, the rebels have to sacrifice themselves, their family, their loved ones, because anybody who j- joins the empire, it's not just you joining the empire. It's your spouse. It's your child. It's your family. And if you're going full in on the empire, then anybody who needs to join the rebellion needs to go full in and you're sacrificing your life and everyone's life that's connected to you. And you can't be a wimp about fighting them. And that's how his stance is. And that's a scary thing to think. It's a scary thing to imagine that if you're going to go against this empire, you're risking it all. And the rebellion, in his mind, isn't taking that full risk. There's people joining the, the rebellion, but it's just not enough. They're not going full in and, as you said, fighting fire with fire. And that again, that's, it's a scary thing. It's almost like two empires against each other.
0: Well and it's interesting too, because you can see some of Saul's frustration uh, and why he would be frustrated in that scene in Rogue one around the the round table as the different parts of the rebellion have all come together and they're just kind of squabbling, you know, and not really seemingly being willing to sacrifice everything to destroy the Empire. And but at the same time, you know, Saul might be willing to sacrifice everything, but he's also willing to kind of sacrifice everyone to fight the empire. And And that's the difference uh, between the, the main, what becomes the main alliance and and Saul's group of partisans. Saul is specifically willing to do anything and everything to try and hurt the empire, no matter what the cost. And that's the big difference that we really see between him and the alliance. And we would definitely say that one of those things is more right than the other.
1: But here Saul has a weakness. Saul is willing to sacrifice anyone to win except for Jin. Jin he has That's adopted true. as his daughter and he goes to protect her to the point that he abandons her on that protection. He could have util- he could have continued to utilize Jin in his fight against the empire but when there's a circumstance that presented itself he abandoned her to leave her and say he was going to come back and he didn't come back which you know we heard about that in the movie and now we get to see that play out in the book.
0: Saul is having a conversation uh, with Idrissa uh, and he, he says to her, he says, look, if you want your little coalition to work, you'll do the same, which is you'll do whatever it takes. And uh, I thought that was is really interesting. The idea that, you know, he, he's talking about, look, the we yeah, we embrace terrorism. That's what we do. You know, uh, because, and if you want uh, it to work, you you will do the same. And having this conversation with Idrissa, she she says, you know, I care about what we do, and we do not kill innocent civilians just to disrupt the Empire's shipping lanes. And Saw says, well, that's the price of war. And so you see this callousness that's come over. (laughs) Callous. Uh, Not hot callous, this callousness that's come (laughs) over Saw and his feelings about what it takes to, to face the Empire. And and I think what's so interesting is the way in which we kind of watch Saul. Because this book takes over a long period of time, obviously. And we see that descent into terrorism. That, uh, you know, everything he faced on Onderon. Losing his sister. Uh, and... That galvanizing in him, that willingness to to legitimately do just whatever it takes to destroy the Empire, no matter what the cost, no matter who gets hurt, uh, because he has such a uh, anger against them, it's taken over every ounce of goodness that was left in him to have empathy or care for who the people he's purportedly trying to save, you know? Uh, he doesn't have that anymore. It really is just, I want to hurt the Empire. That's, that's really what it comes down to in the end.
1: The, and I think the book is a great bridge between the episodes that he was in in the Clone Wars to the movie Rogue One. I don't really feel like we need a Saul Guerrero book after uh, this one. I think this gives me, as a reader and a Star Wars fan, everything I need to know about this character. If they decide to write a book that takes place somewhere before this book with Saul Guerrero, of course, I'm going to pick it up and read it. But I think I've learned enough about him to know the effects of what he went through during the Clone Wars and losing his sister and having to step up and be a leader of this group and and being his own person and not joining the rebellion. He's going to do this on his own the way that he thinks it needs to be done. And unfortunately, Jin is now caught up into this. And his hatred, he's not a bad person. No, he means no. good, but his hatred for the empire, for what they've done to his sister and to other people is so great that I feel like it just fuels anger into Jin. And I think Jin is struggling. And like, we'll talk about this more as we get through the book, but I think Jin is struggling with this anger and then she's able to kind of pull it back later on.
0: Well, and I think that's what's so interesting. Think of, think about what Yoda said in episode one. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. And Saw's hate is leading to the suffering of the galaxy because he he's not thinking straight anymore about what's really best for the galaxy. Obviously, it's best for the galaxy not to have the Empire. But the way in which you go about ridding the galaxy of the Empire is, a, is completely different to, to where he's come down to, which is, I will do whatever it takes. I will hurt whoever it takes. I don't care who gets in my way. And it's because he's blinded by the anger that he has that's led to hate that's now just leading to suffering. And he doesn't care about the suffering anymore. hes He's grown hardened to it. He's grown... Again, he's grown callous to suffering in any way, shape, or form, because he's driven by nothing but anger and hate, which is interesting because really, in some ways, uh, you, you see that parallel between him and Vader as he slowly turns into this Vader-like character. And you know, Rogue One shows us that he's able to let go of that finally and to say, "No, my time is done. I need to give this up." Because it's almost as if he finally realizes what he's totally turning into. And he finds a little bit of redemption there in the end. And I have thought that, you know, again, connecting with the the character here. I think you're absolutely right. We don't need a Saul book because this is as much a gin book as it is a Saw book. and And we're getting that opportunity to see that whole relationship. And that the way that's playing out. Uh, with both of the characters, and it's phenomenally done. I mean, it just—it
1: really is. Well, and the title is "Rebel Rising," and of course, we relate that to Jin, But this is also about Saul Guerrero. This is him rising as his own rebel, a rebel against the rebels. Yes. So it, it works with both characters. And, and as you're describing what he's trying to do, it sounds the same thing as if Palpatine were talking or Anakin were talking about dictatorship and and not allowing other people to vote. It's like if if Saul Guerrero were to win the war and take down the empire and then he is going to form the new republic, I have a feeling it would be just like the empire.
0: That is, I think that's a great way to put it because in the end, Saul doesn't seem to have any idea of a plan for what the universe would look like without the Empire. He just cares about the Empire being gone. He's not a person who's even thinking about what do we leave behind. Yes. And and that's part of the reason he's willing to do anything. He's just not thinking about that whatsoever. And that's the danger. Uh, yeah. He He's not forward thinking enough. All he's thinking about is the one thing and that's we got to get rid of the Empire.
1: I have a feeling if he got rid of the Empire he'd say we got rid of the Empire and now... We have a new empire, a better empire, an empire that I can rule and make things better. And it's like, no, it's still an empire. It still sucks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, and and that's one of the things that's really interesting in this book, just kind of talking about the empire. And and what I like about the, the book here is that it does a good job of showing us what the empire is like and the way in which it takes over planets, the way in which it, it uh, deals with the planets and the people and, and everything. And there's this whole section on Inusagi, this, this planet that the, they're doing an operation on. And Jin overhears some people talking, and they say, The Empire is here whether we like it or not. At least they're peaceful. Peaceful, the first woman snorted. Silence is not the same as peace and i just thought it, it, this book does such a good job of digging into what life is like under the empire uh and and seeing the ways in which they take over the planets the, obviously the book has a lot to do with again mining uh as the as the empire is strip mining places destroying places to take over um covering up their crimes in different ways uh, to the to the rest of the galaxy through the Senate, you know, to say uh, accidents happened here or this happened there, you know, uh, all tying into what we saw in Catalyst and stuff. But really, just uh, again, seeing that picture of the destruction of the galaxy through the uh, carelessness and and the um, the uncaringness of the Empire towards its own subjects, other than its own. Per- Perpetuation is, it's, I mean, it's awful. You can see, you see why Saul feels the way he does about the Empire. And because of what the Empire does to people. But then you also see that what Saul does isn't any better than the Empire.
1: Yeah, it's almost as if he has lost hope. Maybe hope in humanity. i I, I don't know. I mean, by the time we get to Rogue One, he seems a little crazed, which I think is part of the fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. I feel like he's suffering in Rogue One to the point that he can't even shave his head anymore like he used to. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm kind of going to go off topic just a little because you were talking about the Empire mining to build the Death Star. And we keep seeing this more and more in books. And I keep thinking, well, all this material is going to to the Death Star. And I assume a lot of it then is being used for the second Death Star. But it makes me wonder, well, what are they using to build Starkiller Base in The Force Awakens? Are they mining tons of planets in that unknown region of space or something? Like, where did they get all that material? Because <laughs> that's a bigger star base than, you know... The Death Star. So, just something I've thought about. Something that. Yeah, that's a good
0: question. Uh, And I think the answer to that is to play in that tangent for just a second. Um, It's speculated that Starkiller bases actually hollowed out Ilum with the Empire left of Ilum after it was done kyber crystal mining. Uh, And so that the materials then used, uh, it would still be ridiculously extensive, uh, who knows? I don't know. Maybe that has all to do with Palpatine's contingency plans and, you know, what we saw in some in the aftermath, but who knows? But that is actually a good question um, because it seems like for uh, if, if the First Order is building this thing for 30 years, you got to be getting the material from somewhere uh, or however long they're building. We don't even know yet. So,
1: well, Like you, know, you said, the contingency plan of Palpatine. Yeah, could be. Yeah.
0: One of, the, one of the parts, too, on, on that, that same planet we were just talking about with the Empire, there's this um, person that, that tells a story to Jin, And I, I liked the metaphor of this story. And the man tells it to her. He says, it's an old tale anyway. People forget old tales, but the star bird lives in the heart of every star in the galaxy. And when a star goes out, the bird dies a fiery death. It spreads its wings, spanning millions of kilometers, stretching out over the dark abyss of space. The star bird returns to stardust. All that's left is its heart, and the dust spreads out over the galaxy and forms again, and the man cupped his hands as if to hold the stardust, and the star bird is reborn. And I thought, what I really liked about this section was the way in which it kind of is a metaphor for the star wars galaxy in general yeah. you know like think of the the pt you have the starbird that dies out explodes and re- is slowly being reformed into this dark time area and then we blow that up with the death stars and then that gets reborn into the sequel trilogy era like there's this perpetual rebirth happening uh, for the galaxy of Star Wars. And, and maybe that's why there's always a, seems to be some massive galactic conflict every, you know, 100 years. or I mean, it, it, at least the Old Republic, it seemed like, lasted for over a thousand generations with the Jedi Knights. Uh, but it, it keeps getting faster and faster, this rebirth. And I just, I really liked that. I thought it was like this wonderful kind of meta conversation about the actual Star Wars galaxy. And, and I really liked that Beth kind of added that into um, the storyline because it, it almost felt like a nice wink and nod to us as Star Wars fans as we experience these different time periods where, you know, you, you kind of seem to come full circle but then it's going in a different direction and then you come full circle, and you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I hadn't quite thought about it that way. It's interesting wh- how you're playing that out. So, Starbird, Star Wars, Star, 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 everywhere. Um, yeah. I You know, and that's a th- great thing because that's the way history is, too. History always yeah, seems to absolutely. repeat itself. We never seem to really learn from it. <laughs> you know, we, we go to history class and we're told to learn from history so we don't repeat our mistakes, but we're always repeating the mistakes in some manner, in some f- form or fashion that's happening. And you're right. It's happening here in the Star Wars universe. And so... I'd like to see something played out with that star bird idea, you know? Maybe that will come up somewhere. Maybe we'll even see a bird and they refer to it as a star bird. Mm. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, isn't the star
1: bird the
0: symbol of the rebellion for uh, the rebels?
1: It, yeah, you, hey, you may be right there.
0: I Because I think that's, uh, in rebels, I think that's the symbol that Sabine has created. And uh, I, I think that's what's so interesting. You think about this, you know, the whole idea of this starboard rebirth, you know, re- republics die, empires fall, new republics meet a fiery death. I mean, it just kind of keeps perpetuating itself as a storyline. And I think that's really fascinating. Honestly. Yes. I just...
1: So it's the symbol of hope, the Alliance Starbird, also known as the Phoenix. I just looked that up. There you go. So
0: I, it all ties together, and I—it's I, kind of cool that we have the—the the old tale that they're pulling from. Like we finally have that connection now with the uh, rebel symbol and the rebel alliance symbol, uh, and the idea of the phoenix rising, uh, and of course, obviously, Phoenix Squadron and what we've seen rebels. I, I like that they—they
1: they, they brought all those connections together. That's just—that's really cool. Yeah, it never even <laughs> dawned on me when I read that part. Well, we've got things. a new dawn here. We Bruce, do have a new so. dawn. Thank you yeah. John Jackson Miller for that.
0: <laughs> so, uh let's okay, the really the this book is about Jin, And I I think it's it's really fascinating to watch the 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 way that the character progresses. Um you know, because early on in her life with saw she kind of gets drawn into everything and believing in the cause. And so I wanted to start just by talking about that early life with her and she finds the things she's good at that helps the rebellion and, and she's, um, she's really believing in Saul's message because she sees and, and even uh, Saul even talks to her about, you know, how the, look, the rebellion needs a leader it can believe in. That, that people don't just follow ideals, but they follow a leader. And that's why people are drawn to Saul. And he even talks about how uh, he he still mourns the loss of his sister, Stila, because she was really the person who people would truly have followed. You know, he's just kind of a pale reflection of her. And that this whole idea of, you know, for people to follow, they need uh, maybe a martyr, uh, somebody like Stila, they need a strong leader, somebody that they can follow. Um, and it was all kind of connecting for me in the ways in which you were talking about would Saul have kind of become uh if he had won the, the you know the fight against the empire would he have ended up becoming somebody like an Anakin or the emperor or you know what kind of leader that we want and all of this is going on and and it's really influencing who the the, the cycle of where jinn's going to go to and i thought that to me it was just like the psychology of the character of Jin is is just fascinating throughout this book because she's
1: exposed to so much stuff and i think when we see Saul in Rogue One he's missing a foot or leg or whatever he's got going on there he's in the suit he's breathing through this mask i think he's supposed to be kind of a parallel to Darth Vader it's going down that same Great. path but that path went in a slightly different direction for Saul than it did for Vader, but he becomes her. He becomes Jin's surrogate father. She's lost her father to the Empire, and Saul and the people around him believe that that Galen Urso has joined the Empire to help do whatever it is that they're doing, yep. which we know now is yep. the Death Star. And so Jin believes that too because. He never comes back for her. She's waiting for her father to come get her, to come back. She knows her mother died, but she's waiting for her father to come back. But her father went off with the guy in the white suit, the way she looks at it. You know, the guy in the white, he left with him and he's never come back to her. So she's hearing from her surrogate father and others that her father betrayed her and the people of the galaxy to join the Empire. And so she's got that kind of hatred now building inside of her, just like Saul has in him. And so Saul is the person that she's looking to for direction on how to handle things. And we know Saul isn't necessarily handling things in the right way.
0: The psychology of what, uh, what Jin is raised under, you know, thinking that her own father is a traitor. She even uh, calls him a bastard in in this in which she was reflected in the uh, novelization of Rogue One where she talks about her father in her head. Um, and and this this seeing Saw as a father and and, and as a as a leader and somebody she follows and, and that she wants to impress. I mean as she's is being raised by him, she she like everybody else she sees around her in his partisan group wants to impress Saw to 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 be somebody that he looks at and kind of gives the atta boy to or the atta girl, right? She wants that. And yet at the same time, then you get to the point where he leaves her and abandons her. And it destroys Once again. Ev- right. again. Yeah. She she has the worst abandonment issues. And anywhere, uh, you can see, because she's been abandoned now, which she thinks of as twice. And it, it, it influences who she becomes because she goes from being somebody who believes in the rebellion, or believes in the cause, to somebody who wants absolutely nothing to do with the Empire or the rebellion. She sees them both as bad. Because to her, the... What she sees is that the rebellion always brings down the empire on the people, and if if people would just like, basically, what she says in Rogue One, if you don't look up, it's not so bad. If you just kind of went about your business, if everybody would just go about the business, and stop being at everybody else's business, maybe this galaxy would be better. Like she's completely at that point. She's become that hands off. I don't want anything to do with any of this. I just want to be able to live like that's where she comes down to like i just want to live
1: yeah she accuses people for causing the empire to want to get involved and then what she learns later is that you don't have to be a, a rebellion you don't have to rebel against the empire you don't have to do anything to stand out to get the empire to invade your territory. The empire is going to come regardless. She learns that later. It's like, you know, the rebels are bad because it brings the empire. Well, then she realizes, well, gosh, now I'm witnessing a place where there is no rebellion going on and the empire shows up anyway.
0: That was so interesting to, to watch her. And and I think, again, the, the book does such a great job of, of kind of bringing her through this circle. And, you know by the end of the book she's back at a place where okay maybe we can find hope in the rebellion again but she's had to come all the way full circle to that through this point where there's a there's an a moment where jin has to face the decision does she leave people in slavery to save her own life and she almost it, it seems like she's on the cusp of making the wrong decision, uh, and and she finds herself not being able to uh, make that decision of basically sacrificing other people's life so she can live, and and the way that you get there is that Jin, being abandoned by Saul, finally finds a life with a couple of people on a planet where the Empire isn't around. And this is really where that whole idea of, oh, well, maybe if we just keep our nose to the grindstone, uh, we we don't need... Maybe the idea that the Empire just kind of views us as ants and they don't care about the ants. Uh, and if we just pretend to it's not there, we'll be okay. This is really where she starts to kind of learn that whole idea with Hatter and... Akshaya, which is his mother, uh, she she lands on this planet with them, uh, and she lives with them for quite a while. And Akshaya's whole view of life is that we're the ants, and the Empire is basically the human with the big boot, and nobody, you know, cares about the ants. If we just kind of stay out of their business, they'll leave us alone. And for a while, she actually has somewhat of a normal life. She gets this kind of little reprieve to kind of live in this life with two people where they care about each other. They love each other. They have food. You know, she kind of has a normal existence. She's able to help them out with the skills she's gained with uh, the rebellion, uh, forging documents and helping her, Exchea and... It's, it, it. I don't know. It, it, it was something unexpected. This is, this, this is the part of the book, Bruce, that I just didn't expect with Jen, that she would get this opportunity to have this be a part of her life.
1: To kind of have a normal life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't expect this to be there at all. Honestly, yeah, I didn't which... either,
1: it, but it was nice. It was actually good to know that she had an experience, uh, a normal life for a period of time. Um, If anything, I think having that experience makes her realize that there is hope. Because if what she saw what happened with her father and to her mother and now living with Saul Guerrero and all the negativity that goes with that, I don't think this is a girl that's going to grow up to be a woman with much hope at all. And I think she's going to be like Saul and just out for revenge. And now she's got a life where... Things seem to be normal. She's got a woman that's caring for her. She's uh, with this woman's son, so she has someone that she can bond with and get to know someone her own age because she's not even raised when she's with Saul Guerrero. She's never around people her own age. She's the only kid around. I mean, everybody else are adults. So this kind of grounds her. And... You know, I'm just thinking about that whole idea of the starbird and 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 you know, her father referred to her as stardust and you had mentioned that the starbird becomes stardust. And I think this is the point from here to the point that we get to at Rogue One where the stardust is reborn into the starbird, which makes me think of Jin Erso as being like the mockingjay in The Hunger Games.
0: I think that is a really, really good point, Bruce, because it's her experience with Hatter and Achea that kind of forments that descent into almost being somebody who will do anything just to survive to coming back full circle around to being somebody once she's being rescued that thinks maybe, just maybe this is a way to find hope again. And part of that is that her and Hatter fall in love and have a relationship together. You know, they she experiences love and sex and having a, a, a life that's not just completely fueled by hate and rage and anger at the Empire and all the type of... She gets to have that a, a opportunity to see what life is like hopefully on the other side of rebellion, uh, of what would be truly worth fighting for, which is the opportunity for people to live in a galaxy where they could have relationships and families and all of these things. And I think you're absolutely right. It was a really nice point of the book to see that Jin, in her life, got to have just a little bit of that. And it also... Uh, Influence my reading of the relationship between Jin and Cassian, especially in that last moment uh, when they're riding down the elevator together and they have their wonderful moment on the beach, as there's this connection there between two people who have spent most of their lives in this fight in different ways. And... You know, Jin never gets to have that conversation of Cassian basically saying, "I've I'd been in this fight too since I was your age, that that eight to six year old, right?" Uh, and the different ways that it's affected them, and and having that moment of them, like what could have been, like if they had survived, would they have been able to go on and find a life together, maybe? But yeah. that doesn't get to be a thing for them because their time is up. You know, they've run out of chances, as Jin said. We'll take the next chance until the next chance. Until so we run out of chances or our mission is complete. At least they knew they completed their mission at that point. At least they thought they did. And, and, and we know they did. Um, but yeah, I just, I love this, this aspect of watching Jin go through these different cycles, like you were talking about, of the, the, the starbird. She, in herself, kind of becomes
1: a picture of the Starbird Rebirth. Right. She's almost the story of the Rebellion. Her whole life is.
0: Yeah, Yeah.
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And it would be interesting if there was a Cassian novel that comes out that shows his backstory, because I have a feeling his story is somewhat similar to hers growing up, since he's been fighting the Rebellion since he was, whatever, eight years old. But I don't think he ever had the one thing that she had was that period of happiness. And I think that's what gave her the hope. And he didn't get that chance until he met her. And then she gave him hope. And so I think she brought him to where she was and they were able to partner together and do what they did in the movie of Rogue One.
0: That's the that's the thing that I, I really, uh, I think Bruce... Um that this book just does so well is it gives you the opportunity to see and to know Jin and her story in a way that enlivens every moment of Rogue One. It adds so much to to Rogue One. And I I think, you know, as we kind of talked about at, at the beginning... That's what makes for successful Star Wars books or any tie-in fiction, where it feels like it enhances every part of what comes next for the characters and when you see them on screen. And, and like you said, this enhances not only Jin and Saw and the Rebellion and everything you see in Rogue One, but it also enhances the storyline we see for Saw when we saw him in Rebels. And, and the continuation of that story, and and that's what's so special about a book like this, and and what truly makes it one of those where I I um, and I guess let's get into the, to the ratings, Bruce, because we could talk so much more about this book, but I I think uh, it, you should just go read it because uh, I don't want to to spoil any other parts of this story for anyone. This book, I, I, I'm going to give my ratings first. I'm going to say this book is essential. This is essential reading as a Star Wars fan. Um, as essential as any book can be in canon. And uh, it's, it's the best of what makes good tie-in fiction. Uh, this is what I love getting from a Star Wars book. Beth Revis has given us something really special here. Uh, I love this story with Jin. I love everything it does for the Empire and the Rebellion and for Saw. I I just love it and I can't stop raving about it. And I give this five out of five Starbird rebirths.
1: I knew you were gonna go with Starbird. <laughs> uh, I had to.
0: We've been talking. It's 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 the it's probably even the title of the episode. I just. It's great, so uh, Bruce. Where are you in the same place with this book? Do you think, or or what did you what it? Where did you come down, you know, after a conversation and and even just reading the book?
1: When I look at Rogue One now, it's almost like the Empire Strikes Back in this series, uh, mm-hmm. and then this book, Rebel Rising, is the New Hope piece of it. This is where you know because Luke, we find out where he goes from being this farm oh, yeah. boy. And to get to point A to B to get him involved with, you know, fighting the Empire. And that's the same thing here. I feel like the Empire Strikes Back is like that next chapter in Jin's life, uh, but in Rogue One. So this is a new hope in Jin's life. This is that story of being this girl who's being raised by her parents. And you know, he's assigned her dad's a scientist. And then what propelled her to go from point a to B to get involved in the rebellion against the empire. So I do feel like it's a central reading. If you're a star Wars fan, if you like rogue one, I, I definitely recommend this book. Um, it's, it's a great read, uh, great insight. It, Insight into Jin, into Saul Guerrero, into the Empire, into the Rebellion, the whole thing. And it's a fun Star Wars story in itself. It can be dark at times, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. So I'm going to give it all the forge j- clearance codes that Jin can manage, and they all seem to work.
0: I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's true. They, they do all seem to work. And, and I think you're right. This book kind of fires on all cylinders. So, um, and, and it's, it's fantastic. So we'll be excited to, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, you'll hear us dive into Guardians of the Wills as well, which has just come out. Uh, in between that, you're going to hear uh, me and Aaron Goins uh, talk about the Freemaker adventures. We have so much stuff we're going to be talking about here in the 602 Club, plus all of the other main episodes that we do uh, we're we're just uh, kicking on all cylinders ourselves here. And, uh, yeah, make sure you uh, go over to iTunes to give us a uh, star rating and review. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. And uh, we want to give back to you with that review contest that we're doing. So uh, make sure you get those in by June 2nd. And uh, really want to thank uh, the reason that these shows can happen and that they can come out for you are the associate producers we have here through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. These guys are fantastic. Uh, They've believed in this show since almost the very beginning and they've been with us. And uh, they not only support the 602 Club, but they support the entire network through Patreon. And this is a huge network. It costs a lot of money. Us to put out these shows each and every week for you, and so go over to Patreon.com/slash TrekFM, and you can see how you can support the network and make sure everything that we do comes to you every day, almost well, pretty much every day of the week. So go over to Patreon.com/slash TrekFM. We have some great perks for you, some exclusive content, we've got early access to content, the Patreons roundtable, and so much more. Every little bit helps each and every week. So to go again to Patreon.com/slash/TrekFM and become part of the TrekFM team. Now, Bruce, uh, it's uh, you know doing this stuff with you is is a joy. It really. Uh, there's not much better in life than just sitting down and talking with you or like John Mills or uh, anybody else that we have here to talk about Star Wars or anything else in the 602 Club. Uh, it's it's a highlight of my week most of the time. And so uh, let everybody know where they can find you if they want to talk about more Star Wars and what else you have
1: going on. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast with Riley Blanton and Mark Hurleman. And you can find me talking Star Trek books and comics here on Trek FM with Dan Gunther on Literary Treks.
0: And you can find me here on Twitter, uh, rushing 2 I'm on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me on the network with Chris Jones. We're back talking Deep Space Nine on the orb. Make sure you check that out. I am on the Nerd Party Network with uh, John Mills. We've mentioned him a couple of times on the show. Talking. Star Wars, Aggressive Negotiations. Make sure you check it out. I love doing that show. Uh, I'm also with Drea Kaufman on Owl Post talking about each and every chapter of Harry Potter. Uh, You can find all of those shows on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We've got podcast shutters all over the place. You know, whatever you use, you can find all of those shows. Make sure you check them out. And of course, Star Wars, the 602 Club Collection. So, We're everywhere. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you.